Part two, chapter three of Eight Hundred Leagues on the Amazon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Eight Hundred Leagues on the Amazon by Jules Verne. Read by Lizzie Driver. Part two, the cryptogram. Chapter three, retrospective. Joam da Costa had relied entirely on Judge Albero and his death was most unfortunate. Before he was judge at Manoas, and chief magistrate in the province, Ribeiro had known the young clerk at the time he was being prosecuted for the murder in the diamond arrayal. He was then an advocate at Villa Rica, and he it was who defended the prisoner at the trial. He took the cause to heart and made it his own, and, from an examination of the papers and detailed information, and not from the simple fact of his position in the matter, he came to the conclusion that his client was wrongfully accused, and that he had taken not the slightest part in the murder of the escort, or the theft of the diamonds. In a word, that Joam de Costa was innocent. But, notwithstanding this conviction, notwithstanding his talent and zeal, Ribeiro was unable to persuade the jury to take the same view of the matter. How could he remove so strong a presumption? If it was not Joam da Costa, who had every facility for informing the scoundrels of the convoy's departure, who was it? The official who accompanied the escort had perished with the greater part of the soldiers, and suspicion could not point against him. Everything agreed in distinguishing da Costa as the true and only author of the crime. Ribeiro defended him with great warmth and with all his powers, but he could not succeed in saving him. The verdict of the jury was affirmative on all the questions. Joam da Costa, convicted of aggregated and premeditated murder, did not even obtain the benefit of extenuating circumstances, and heard himself condemned to death. There was no hope left for the accused. No commutation of the sentence was possible for the crime was committed in the diamond arrayal. The condemned man was lost. But during the night which preceded his execution, and when the gallows was already erected, Joam da Costa managed to escape from the prison at Villa Rica. We know the rest. Twenty years later, Ribeiro, the advocate, became the chief justice of Manoas. In the depths of his retreat, the Vizendir of Iquitos, heard of the change, and in it saw a favourable opportunity for bringing forward the revision of the former proceedings against him, with some chance of success. He knew that the old convictions of the advocate would be still unshaken in the mind of a judge. He therefore resolved to try and rehabilitate himself. Had it not been for Ribeiro's nomination to the chief justiceship in the province of the Amazons, he might perhaps have hesitated, for he had no new material proof of his innocence to bring forward. Although the honest man suffered acutely, he might still have remained hidden in exile at Equitas, and still have asked for time to smother the remembrances of the horrible occurrence. But something was urging him to act in the matter without delay. In fact, before Yaquita had spoken to him, Joam de Costa had noticed that Manuel was in love with his daughter. The union of the young army doctor and his daughter was in every respect a suitable one. 
it was evident to Joanne that some day or other he would be asked for a hand in marriage, and he did not wish to be obliged to refuse. But then the thought that his daughter would have to marry under a name which did not belong to her, that Manuel Valdez, thinking he was entering the family of Garral, would enter that of da Costa, the head of which was under sentence of death, was intolerable to him. No, the wedding should not take place unless under proper conditions. Never. Let us recall what had happened up to this time. Four years after the young clerk, who eventually became the partner of Magalhas, had arrived at Equitos, the old Portuguese had been taken back to the farm mortally injured. A few days only were left for him to live. He was alarmed at the thought that his daughter would be left alone and unprotected. But knowing that Joe and Yaquita were in love with each other, he desired their union without delay. Joam at first refused. He offered to remain the protector or the servant of Yaquita, without becoming her husband. The wish of the dying Magalhaes was so urgent that resistance became impossible. Yaquita put her hand into the hand of Joam, and Joam did not withdraw it. Yes, it was a serious matter. Joam de Costa ought to have confessed all, or to have fled forever from the house in which he had been so hospitably received, from the establishment of which he had built up the prosperity. Yes, to confess everything rather than to give to the daughter of his benefactor a name which was not his own, instead of the name of a felon condemned to the death for murder, innocent though he might be. But the case was pressing. The old fazender was on the point of death. His hands were stretched out toward the young people. Joanne was silent. The marriage took place. And the remainder of his life was devoted to the happiness of the girl he had made his wife. The day when I confess everything, Joanne repeated, Yukita will pardon everything. She will not doubt me for an instant. But if I ought not to have deceived her, I certainly will not deceive the honest fellow who wishes to enter our family by marrying Mina. No, I would rather give myself up and have done with this life. Many times had Joam thought of telling his wife about his past life. Yes, the avowal was on his lips whenever she asked him to take her into Brazil, and with her and her daughter descend the beautiful Amazon River. He knew sufficient of Yakita to be sure that her affection for him would not thereby be diminished in the least. But courage failed him. And this is easily intelligible in the face of the happiness of the family, which increased on every side. This happiness was his work, and it might be destroyed forever by his return. Such had been his life for those long years. Such had been the continuous source of his sufferings, of which he had kept the secret so well. Such had been the existence of this man, who had no action to be ashamed of, and whom a great injustice compelled to hide away from himself. But at length the day arrived when there could no longer remain a doubt as to the affection which Manuel bore to Mina, when he could see that a year would not go by before he was asked to give his consent to her marriage. And, after a short delay, he no longer hesitated to proceed in the matter. A letter from him, addressed to Judge Ribeiro, acquainted the Chief Justice with the secret of the existence of Joam da Costa, with the name under which he was concealed 
with the place where he lived with his family, and at the same time with his formal intention of delivering himself up to justice, and taking steps to procure the revision of the proceedings, which would either result in his rehabilitation, or in the execution of the iniquitous judgment delivered at Villa Rica. What were the feelings which agitated the heart of the worthy magistrate? We can easily define them. It was no longer to the advocate that the accused applied. It was to the chief justice of the province that the convict appealed. Joam de Costa gave himself over to him entirely, and did not even ask him to keep the secret. Judge Ribeiro was at first troubled about this unexpected revelation, but he soon recovered himself, and scrupulously considered the duties which the position imposed on him. It was his place to pursue criminals, and here was one who delivered himself into his hands. This criminal, it was true, he had defended. He had never doubted but that he had been unjustly condemned. His joy had been extreme when he saw him escape by flight from the last penalty. He had even investigated and facilitated his flight. But what the advocate had done in the past, could the magistrate do in the present? Well, yes, had the judge said. My conscience tells me not to abandon this just man. The step he has taken is a fresh proof of his innocence, a moral proof, even if he brings me others, which may be the most convincing of all. No, I will not abandon him. From this day forward a secret correspondence took place between the magistrate and Joam da Costa. Ribeiro, at the outset, cautioned his client against compromising himself by any imprudence. He had again to work up the matter, again to read over the papers, again to look through the inquiries. He had to find out if any new facts had come to light in the Diamond Province, referring to so serious a case. Had any of the complices of the crime, of the smugglers who had attacked the convoy, been arrested since the attempt? Had any confessions or half-confessions been brought forward? Joam de Costa had done nothing but protest his innocence from the very first. But that was not enough, and Judge Ribeiro was desirous of finding in the case itself the clue to the real culprit. Joam de Costa had accordingly been prudent. He had promised to be so. But in all his trials it was an immense consolation for him to find his old advocate, though now a chief justice, so firmly convinced that he was not guilty. Yes, Joam da Costa, in spite of his condemnation, was a victim, a martyr, an honest man to whom society owed a signal reparation. And when the magistrate knew the past career of the Fazendir of Iquitas since his sentence, the position of his family, all that life of devotion, of work, employed unceasingly for the happiness of those belonging to him, he was not only more convinced, but more affected, and determined to do all that he could to procure the rehabilitation of the fellow of Tiaco. For six months a correspondence had passed between these two men. One day, the case being pressing, Joam da Costa wrote to Judge Ribeiro, "'In two months I will be with you, in the power of the Chief Justice of the province.' "'Come, then,' replied Ribeiro. The jangada was then ready to go down the river. Joam da Costa embarked on it with all his people. 
During the voyage, to the great astonishment of his wife and son, he landed but rarely, as we know. More often he remained shut up on his room, writing, working, not at his trading accounts, but, without saying anything about it, at a kind of memoir, which he called The History of My Life, and which was meant to be used in the revision of the legal proceedings. Eight days before his new arrest, made an account of information given by Torres, which forestalled and perhaps would ruin his prospects, he entrusted to an Indian on the Amazon a letter, in which he warned Judge Ribeiro of his approaching arrival. The letter was sent and delivered as addressed, and the magistrate only waited for Jerome de Costa to commence on the serious undertaking which he hoped to bring to a successful issue. During the night before the arrival of the raft at Manoas, Judge Ribeiro was seized with an attack of apoplexy. But the denunciation of Torres, whose scheme of extortion had collapsed in face of the noble anger of his victim, had produced its effect. Jerome de Costa was arrested in the bosom of his family, and his old advocate was no longer in this world to defend him. Yes, the blow was terrible indeed. His lot was cast, whatever his fate might be. There was no going back for him. And Jerome de Costa rose from beneath the blow which had so unexpectedly struck him. It was not only his own honour which was in question, but the honour of all who belonged to him. End of chapter 3 Retrospective